Worldly leadership is often characterized by power, prominence, and privilege. But this kind of self-centered perspective is vastly different from the kind of leadership that should characterize the church. Welcome to Radical with David Platt, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered resources over at our website, Radical.net. In today's message from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll see how God's grace and the gospel should shape not only our view of church leadership, but also ourselves. Because everything we have is a gift of God's grace, we can flee pride and the temptation to live for the approval of others. Our commendation comes from God alone. Here's David Platt with the sermon titled, Viewing Our Leaders and Ourselves in Light of the Gospel, from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with. I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians 4, and also pull out, hopefully receive that uh, one-page sheet that has 1 Corinthians 4 on it, and some questions uh, at the end. So uh, if you're new here, uh, we use an acrostic called MAPS that you see uh, on that sheet uh, that stands for meditate and memorize. So just meditate means uh, just to soak in, just read through slowly and soak in what the Bible is saying. So meditate and memorize, then apply it to our lives, pray through that, and look for opportunities to share that with someone else. So in just a minute, we're going to do something similar to what we've been doing in previous weeks, but even last week we did it in a unique way. We're going to do again. So we're going to have a a few minutes just to kind of walk through this passage and kind of meditate on your own. And I want us to think today about two particular questions that are under that M in meditate. Uh, And we're going to start by thinking about this first question. So according to this entire chapter, I want to encourage you to read through the entire chapter and ask this question. How does God tell us to view leaders in the church? So we talked about that a little bit last week. I want us to dive in a little deeper because that's what this chapter, in a sense, is all about. From the very beginning, you're gonna see Paul saying, this is how one should regard us. And when he says us there, he's talking about himself and other leaders in the church. Paul, Apollos, Peter, these are people that we've already seen their names up to this point in 1 Corinthians. And now he's saying, "This this is how you should view us. So this is the Bible saying how we should view leaders in the church. So what I want you to do in just a minute is just to read through on your own, and anybody can do this. So young, old, if if this is your, uh, if you've been in church for decades, or if this is your first time ever in church, maybe even if you don't yet believe the Bible, like you can still, we invite you to join with us, just read through and just say, okay, what does what I just read teach about leaders in the church? And then what we're going to do, similar to what we did last week that I want to do again, just because we have a unique opportunity to do that, is to turn to each other and discuss a little bit of that, just for a couple minutes. And again, I know that makes some people nervous um, because you're not really... uh, up for group discussion uh, with people that maybe you don't even know that well around you. And so you have total freedom to, when you introduce your people, yourself to the people around you, just say, I'm a designated listener. So that's, that's totally fine for you to be the designated listener. Now, if everybody in your group is a designated listener, then broaden your group till you find somebody who's willing to say something, uh, or you can just sit in awkward silence. But, uh, and, and for those of you who don't like this activity, uh, I'll be on a screen next week and you will be free. So, uh, so just, uh, anyway, you don't have to sweat coming next week. So, uh, all right. 
Uh, I just want to, I want you to think through, think through the, this question, read through it and, and ask, what is God telling us about how we should view leaders in the church? So let, let me pray for us. Oh God, we praise you for your word. We praise you, you've not left us alone in the dark. And Lord, knowing what we're about to read, I know you're about to teach us not just about how we view leaders in the church, but how we view ourselves in ways that I know have the potential to change lives and perspectives in this room in the next few minutes. So we just, we ask you to do this work. Take your word by your spirit and speak to every one of our hearts right now. To those who've been in the church for years, maybe have read this passage many times before, or those who are are totally new to this picture. We pray that your spirit would speak now in a supernatural way through your word. And we anticipate where that will lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me encourage you, just take a couple minutes first on your own and just read through 1 Corinthians 4 and just think about that first question. What does this passage teach us about how we should view leaders in the church? Maybe circle words, underline phrases, just kind of make some notes uh, about that, that answer that question. And then I'll, I'll bring us back together. So go for it. Take a few minutes just to do that right where you're sitting on your own. So here's what I want to do. Again, I'm not going to call out anybody uh, specifically, but to the extent in which you feel comfortable, I would love to hear just like some one sentence uh, answers to this question based on this passage. So around the room, how does God tell us to view ourselves? Just simple sentence that's, that summarize some of the things that you all saw. Who would start us off? Servants. So from the very beginning, leaders, God says, view leaders as servants of Christ. That's good. What else? Stewards. stewards. Another word, stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Somebody else over here said something? As Faithful. Okay, so that's, that's like the job description of a leader in the church. Like, not cool, thankfully, not uh, well-dressed, thankfully. Uh, anyway, we go on and on, uh, not uh, creative, not clever, not, like faithful. That's the job description, faithful. It's good. What else? Humble, humble, that's good. What else? Guides, it's good, guides. Yes, Teachers, what was the last part? Teachers, not authors of God's word. Good, very good. Relaying information like we talked about a couple weeks ago when I said, I'm not the chef here, I'm the waiter. Just get the the food to the table. I don't cook the food. Just get it there hot. What else? What was that? Fathers. Isn't that interesting? The family imagery, the way he talks about Timothy as his child, the church as his beloved children. It's a powerful picture. quite a statement. Be imitators of me. Somebody who lives their life for Christ in a way that's worthy of imitation. It's good. Anything else? I, I think, I think, oh, sorry, was somebody saying something? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Not to be people pleasers. That's good. Oh, very, very good. Leaders are human. Good call. Yes. Absolutely. It's a good word. 
Oh, there's so much here to soak in. So here's, here's, how, so here's an attempt to summarize, I think, everything that was just said. So uh, I think in five big picture categories, how does God tell us to view leaders in the church? We'll just hit them real quick because you've all, you mentioned them all. So one, as servants of Christ. So that's one clear word from God. Leaders are servants of Christ and it's really interesting. The word there for servant is, uh, so there's a, a word that Paul often uses uh, to describe, uh, uh, to, that's translated servant in English, the doulos, which is like a slave. But the word he uses here is a little different. It's actually the, the word there that's translated servant is the word that would be used in the first century for like an under rower on a boat. So picture like the lowest galley of slaves on a boat. Like people, their, their only job to row here or there, do this or that, according to what the captain of the boat says to do. And so that's the picture of a leader in the church. Like they are servants. Because think about it, right? Who is the leader of the church? Jesus says, he leads his church and he has put leaders in place who their job is to just do whatever he says. That's why, and it was mentioned uh, um, to not be the author of God's word, but to teach God's word. When you look in 1 Timothy chapter three, you see a whole list of qualifications for pastors and elders in the church. And it's interesting, almost all those qualifications are character qualifications that you would expect of any follower of Jesus, which we'll talk about uh, more in a second. There's one competency qualification, one thing that a leader, a pastor or elder specifically must be able to do. And that competency qualification, 1 Timothy chapter three, verse two, he must be able to teach. That's, the, that's what drives everything because if leaders are teaching God's word, then Jesus will be leading his church. If leaders are not teaching God's word, then leaders will be leading the church in ways that are apart from Christ. So servants of Christ, under rows, just say what's here. Like that's the job every week, just say what's here, uh, which to be honest, makes my job a lot easier. Like, I don't like next week after, what am I gonna say? I gotta come up with something cool, creative, whatever. I just have to read what's in 1 Corinthians 5 and say it. So, servants of Christ. Two, stewards, it was mentioned, of the mysteries of God. So, stewards, this word, someone who's been entrusted with something to steward. And when Paul talks about the mysteries of God, what he's talking about is the gospel. So this is what we've seen all throughout 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3 to this point is Paul is talking about the mystery of Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Remember that language from 1 Corinthians 1 or the wisdom of the world that looks like, wisdom of God that looks like folly to the world? That's the gospel. So yeah, if you are new here, this is your first Sunday in church. Uh, this is the core message at the center of the Bible. It's called the gospel, the good news. And the good news is that all of us in this room have been created by God, loved by God, but we have all sinned against God. We've all turned aside from God's ways to our own ways. It looks different in all of our lives, but we've all decided our ways are better than his ways. And as a result of our sin against God, we are separated from God. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity experiencing judgment from God. But the good news, so you say, well, where's the good news in that? The good news is God has not left us alone in this state. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus' 
done what we could never do. He's lived a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin to die, to experience judgment for, he chose to die. So this is what the cross is all about. Jesus died on a cross to pay the price, endure the judgment for our sin. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that anyone, anywhere, including you today, through faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven of all your sin before God and reconciled into relationship with him for all of eternity. That's the gospel. And leaders are stewards of that message. Like the primary responsibility of a leader in the church is to faithfully pass that message on from generation to generation to generation. Stewards of the greatest treasure in the world, the gospel itself. Keep going here. Uh, Third picture, jump to verse nine. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles. This is talking specifically about leaders in the very beginning of the church that were really laying the foundations for the church like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. So here's a third description of how we view leaders as spectacles to the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, you think about uh, first century context. Paul who's writing this. Remember, Paul has started the church at Corinth. Then he left Corinth to go, around, go, go on and plant other churches. And when he thinks about his life and other leaders, he says, we've become like spectacles to the world. And in the first century, it was not very popular to be Paul or a teacher in the church. You were preaching Christ crucified at the risk of your life. Paul was beaten, stoned, eventually imprisoned, died in prison. And not just Paul. You think about those other first preachers, leaders in the church out of the uh, 11 disciples. Um, so not including Judas who betrayed Jesus, but out of those 11 disciples, John was exiled on an island for preaching the gospel. And the other 10, from all we know in tradition, were martyred because they preached the gospel. So this was not, you didn't have people just eager to sign up for this because this was a way to advance themselves in the world. They were spectacles to the world. You keep going on, what does he say? We hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, we're reviled, persecuted, slandered. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, Fast forward, 21st century, by God's grace. I'm hopefully faithfully preaching the gospel today and I'm not in danger of going to prison tomorrow for it. At least not today and not in this context. Like some other leaders in the church today are facing that possibility. But this is a clear reminder to me and any leader in the church in this context that this is not an avenue to applause in the world. That I, I don't live, and leaders in the church don't live for the applause, the acclaim of this world. That is not what, and if, if leaders in the church aren't careful, we can actually, like you mentioned earlier, live to please people, live to be popular, lead in ways that people will like you, in ways that oftentimes lead you to do things that are contrary to faithfulness to Christ. So it's a good word, spectacles of the world. Let me put two more on here. Verse 14, again, you mentioned this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father. So leaders are, fourth, spiritual parents in the church. Spiritual parents in the church. This is, Paul saw this church as his children. And specifically, he had led many of them to Christ. And if I were to ask around this room, like how you came to faith in Jesus, I'm guessing that many of you would point to particular leaders in the church who had an influence in your coming to faith in Christ. Some directly, some indirectly. Like leaders have helped lead you to become children of God. And that's a picture there that I think, yeah, it's a beautiful picture of what God has designed for the church, that we should be able to look to leaders as those who care for us like, like a parent does a child. Like I think about my kids. Like yesterday when one of my kids just, just out of nowhere comes up and just crawls in my lap and I was working actually on sermon for a day and he just came in and crawled up my lap and I was like, forget the sermon. And I'm just like sitting there with him and I'm like, don't ever leave. Like, this is so great. And, uh, and then I think about last night, uh, our two older boys, like asking, they came to Heather and me with just some questions about love and relationships. And we were like, you've come to the right place. We are the experts on this. And so we start diving into all these things with them. It was so good. Like, I, I, I think about that, that I read this passage and I think, uh, as much as I love my kids, as much as I want to see them grow up in healthy ways, like God's called leaders in the church to think about members in the church that way. Like, with, not, not that we're like crawling up each other's lap. Anyway, don't, or talking. I'm not saying I got love advice for everybody in this room, but I am saying like, I want to, I want to, I want to feed you with truth that helps you to grow up in Christ, like to mature in Christ. Like, yes, yes. Like that, that's why, and you see this all over the New Testament. Like Paul in Galatians 4, he says, I labor for you like as children to see you grow up in Jesus. So, and, and members of the church are supposed to look to leaders as people who are loving them like that. Last one, last one, uh, number five. So I urge you then, be imitators of me. And this was mentioned in a couple different ways. But yeah, leaders in the church are to be serious examples for Christians. Serious examples for Christians. Like I, I read this language. This is like be imitators of me. Imitate me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Like my ways? The, like this is only when I look at this as a leader in the church and say, okay, I'm supposed to live a life that can say to those I'm leading, like, if you imitate me, you will be imitating Jesus. Now, obviously, we all know I'm not perfect. No leader in the church is perfect. But, we're, but leaders in the church are set up to be examples. That's why 1 Timothy 3 has all these character qualifications that are expected of any follower of Christ. But that's the point of a leader. A leader is supposed to reflect the character of Christ in ways that are worthy of imitation. That's a, that's a serious call. That's why we see all throughout Scripture, like, don't, uh, don't be hasty to appoint leaders, to recognize leaders, and don't seek leadership without realizing the uh, severity 
in a sense, the seriousness of that call. So just to put a, uh, let me just put a comma pause on, on this particular question. I just want to practically encourage you in, in two ways based on these five descriptions. One, I just want to encourage, even ask you to pray for these things in leaders in the church. Like as you pray for any leaders in the church, pray that they would be servants of Christ, faithfully stewarding the gospel in ways that may lead them to be a spectacle to the world, that they would faithfully parent the church in ways that set the example for Christians. Like pray for that. And as you pray for that, like look to leaders for these things. And knowing that, as we've talked about, sometimes leaders struggle. But that's where these things are so important, aren't they? Like when a leader who you find out has struggles in this way or that way, if you're, the foundation of your faith is in that leader, then the foundation of your faith starts to crumble. But don't let it be there. They're servants of Christ. And to the extent with which any leader has ever pointed you to Christ, no matter what happens in that leader's life, as long as Christ is the foundation, you have, there's no crumbling there. Because Christ is the foundation. And the gospel remains. It's still the center. And so we focus there. And even when it comes to like spiritual parents and serious examples, like, yes, when, when leaders struggle, then we work to restore them to this picture. And at the same time, we don't kind of fall into a rut where we say, okay, I'm just not gonna look to leaders to be examples anymore. I'm not gonna look to leaders in this way or that way. Like God is telling us in his word, look to leaders for these things. Whenever leaders struggle, then walk through processes to, to rebuild them up, but to keep the focus on Christ and, and look for, pray for, seek out healthy leadership in the church. So all this from 1 Corinthians 4 that God is saying to us today. And then, so now here's kind of a second picture and it's related to this, but it'll kind of be a little bit of a left turn here. How does then God tell us to view ourselves? And I want you to take, so take just a couple of minutes. We're not going to be able to spend as much time like in groups and stuff on this, but I want you to take just a couple of minutes because I want you to see it yourself first. How does God tell us to view ourselves particularly in verses one through five? But I want you to at least get a glimpse just in your own mind. And then now for us to think about this together. So I've got some notes that I, that I put in on that sheet um, when it comes to how God is telling us to view ourselves. And I just want you to, I've uh, just prayed that this would soak in in a way that would be life-changing for you. And I, I don't think that's an overstatement. Hear how God is telling us to view ourselves in his word. So to summarize, God is telling us to view ourselves, one, not according to what others think about us. This is so significant. This is, this is verse three, it's what Paul says. It is, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now remember, remember the context here, what's happening at Corinth. You had members of the church who were aligning with different leaders. They were like, we like Paul, we like Apollos, we like Peter. So, 
And they were pitting, them, pitting not only these leaders against themselves, but themselves against themselves. Like, I'm in the Apollos camp. I'm in the Paul camp. I'm in the Peter camp. All of these different people comparing leaders and themselves with others. These men, and that's why Paul said, remember at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no more boasting in men. This is ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? You're consumed with comparison, taking pride in this leader or that camp. And Paul says your pride is ridiculous comparing yourself and your, yourself and leaders with each other, which makes sense, right? Pride and comparison almost always go together. I mean, think about it. No, nobody's proud because they're rich or attractive or smart or talented. No, People are proud only if they're richer than someone else or smarter than someone else or more attractive or more talented than someone else. That's where pride comes in. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis says in his chapter on pride and mere Christianity. It is a, like one of my favorite chapters in any book anywhere because he just gets right. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Just right, isn't it? Like, th- just think about an example. Like, say you're proud because you're talented in this way or that way. But what happens when you meet somebody else who's more talented than you? Do you still feel proud? No. Suddenly you don't find the pleasure you've once found in your talents because you see someone who has more talents. That's because you never really had pleasure in your talents in the first place. You were proud. You had more than the next person. Now that you've met somebody who's more talented, you're not proud anymore. So here's why this is so important, because we live in a world where we are constantly tempted to compare ourselves with others. It's like either consciously or subconsciously happening in us all the time. Men around this room constantly wondering, how they measure up with others in this way or that way. Women all around this room, looking around at others thinking, I wish I looked like that or I wish I had that. This is like the name of the game on Facebook. Like put your best face forward and you don't always see your best face, you see your worst face. And so you're constantly discouraged. Look at where others are. It's not just Facebook, it's work, it's life. Or it cuts the other way. We might see something and be like, I'm glad I'm not like that person. And so then there's a whole other side of pride, right? Like we're constantly contempted to compare ourselves to others. I, I'd confess, like I'm tempted in the same way in every area of my life, even as a pastor. Like I was thinking about um, one conference I was preaching at in uh, overseas. I was with Francis Chan. Many of you may know uh, uh, that name, uh, just another church leader and friend of mine. And we're doing this conference together. And uh, a a book that I wrote had uh, at that point kind of recently surpassed like 1 million people, uh, people who had bought the book. And I mean, some of you, like I'm wondering, am I just saying this because I'm proud of that, even right now? So anyway, this is, but, but here's, the, here's what happens to Paul's story. So I was like, so just assume for a minute, I kind of was a little proud of that. Well, then I'm at this conference with Francis and somehow it comes out that a book he'd written before that uh, had just sold like 2 million copies. And I was like, ah, oh, 2 million. Like, so anyway, and all of a sudden I found myself like wrestling. I was like, where, where's this coming from? Like, this is absurd. 
But it's, it's like where my mind and my heart are going. It's part of our nature. It's something we all do, and it ultimately leaves us empty. Maybe it makes us feel good for a moment, but it doesn't last because there's no end to it. There's always going to be people who have more or do better or whatever. And as long as we're viewing ourselves in comparison with others or how we're viewed by others, that's a recipe for emptiness. I'm saying this to my teenage boys all the time. Like I see them like wanting to live for the approval of others. And I'm like, it's just going to be a battle all your life. Like, don't do it. It just leads to emptiness, which is why Paul says what he does here. He says, it's a very small thing for me that I would be judged by you or any human court. In other words, I'm not looking at anybody in Corinth for my sense of worth or identity. I'm not comparing myself to Paul or to Apollos or Peter or anybody else. What God is saying here is, and I put this in your notes, avoid comparison with others. Do not look to others to determine what you think about yourself. This is, this is word from God. Do not look to others to determine what you think about yourself. It's futile, it's empty. Because, well, and we could go on here, like, what happens when that person's thoughts, if you're looking to them, what happens when that person's thoughts about you change? When you base your identity on what your spouse says about you, and then they change their mind, or they're no longer there. When you base your worth on what your employer says about you, and they change their mind, or that's no longer there. Like, don't look to others to determine what you think about yourself. You say, well, what's the other option? And most people in our culture at this point would say the answer is obvious, right? If you're talking with any counselor in our culture about this temptation to compare yourself with others, find your identity in that, the counselor's gonna say to you, don't worry about what others say or think about you. You just need to concern, be concerned with what, who thinks about you what you think about you. What do you think about you? That's what's most important. What's most important is what you think about yourself. So our recipe and our culture for dealing with low self-esteem is to remedy it with high self-esteem. Look at you, all you are, all you have, all you've accomplished, so focus there. Stop comparing yourself to others. Stop trying to live up to other standards. Evaluate yourself accordingly. Set your own standards and evaluate yourself according to them. But that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says to do here. Like, look at what Paul says next. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Huh, Paul says, I don't, I don't care what you think about me. And you know what? I don't really care what I think about me either. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, if you were to ask me, I probably would say some good things. But I am not thereby acquitted. That's not where I need to base my identity, my worth on who I think I am, what I think I do is good. Like, no, God's word is saying here we should not view ourselves according to what we think. In other words, avoid confidence in ourselves. Don't view ourselves according to what we think. No, avoid confidence in ourselves. We realize this is a very countercultural message. The Bible is saying here, looking inward to myself is just as much a trap as looking outward to others. So many of us in this room tempted to look at what others expect or think of us, how we compare with them. That leads to emptiness. So we decide we're going to set our own expectations, our own standards for ourselves. But then think about it. Who among us always lives up to our own expectations or standards? None of us does, which always leads to more emptiness and despair. And the only way to avoid that despair is to set really low expectations or standards. 
But then we feel bad about ourselves because we have such low standards. Like it's all empty. It's futile. It leads to despair. So what do we do? And where do we look? If not outward at others or inward at ourselves, then how do we view ourselves? Where do we find our sense of identity and worth and confidence in our lives? I'm glad you asked. Do you want a stable sense of identity? You want an unwavering sense of worth? An unshakable sense of confidence in your life? No matter what you achieve or don't, no matter what you look like, what anybody else thinks, you don't look outward. You don't compare yourself to others. Don't do it. It's a trap. Try to pull you in every day. Don't do it. Don't look outward. Don't look inward. Don't try to boost low self-esteem with high self-esteem, just thinking better thoughts about yourself. You want a stable sense of identity, unwavering sense of worth, unshakable sense of, a conf- of confidence in your life. You don't look outward. You don't look inward. You look upward. Paul says, I look to the Lord who judges me. Paul says, I don't, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about me. The only thing that matters is what he thinks about me. So the Bible's saying we view ourselves only according to what God thinks. Paul says it's, it's the Lord who judges me. And he goes on to say in verse five that he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, in and of itself, that's not necessarily a comforting thought. Right? Okay, I was starting to feel encouraged, but now I realize one day every purpose in my heart, every action I've taken, every thought I've had is gonna be brought into the light and God's gonna hold me accountable for it all. So that's, that's not good. good news for anybody in this room until you realize that this God who will judge you also loves you. And he has made a way for you to be completely right, like righteous before him, accepted by him. He knows everything about you and he has done the unthinkable. He knows all the ways you have sinned, all your weaknesses, all your thoughts, all your desires. And God, the holy God of the universe has done the unthinkable, the unimaginable. He has come to us in Jesus and made it possible for any one of us, no matter who we are, what we have or have not done, for any one of us who puts our trust in Jesus, he declares you loved by him and secure in him as his child forever. You want to talk about a stable sense of identity, an unwavering sense of worth, an unshakable sense of confidence? The God of the universe, the ultimate judge of all, says to you, you are my child and I am for you. You're mine and I love you. (laughs) Christian, live in that. Breathe in that. Look on Facebook with that in your mind. Go to work with that in your mind. You are free from living for the approval of others. You are 
free from living for the approval of yourself. Look up to God. See how he sees you. You don't have to look a certain way before him. You don't have to achieve certain acclaim before him. You don't have to measure up in this way or that way. That's kind of the point. You can't measure up, but he loves you anyway. The God of the universe has spoken, and he has said to all who are in Christ, you're my son. You're my daughter. In Christ, I am pleased with you. And when you realize this, then what do you live for? You live for commendation from God. Now you just refuse to get caught up in a world that's always looking outward, evaluating yourself based on how you're doing in comparison with others. You're free from that. You refuse to get caught up and always looking inward, beating yourself up because of regrets about how you could have done this or that different. No, no. you live with your eyes looking upward, caught up day after day, moment after moment after moment, in gazing upon the God of the universe who says to you at every moment, you are mine. And in Christ, that's not going to change tomorrow. It's not going to change a week from now, a month from now, 10 years from now, or 10 trillion years from now. That is a stable sense of identity, unwavering sense of worth, and unshakable sense of confidence to bank your life on. That's why I say like, this is life-changing. So, so here's the question then for every person in this room. Like, is that where you have rooted your identity? In Christ. Like if you put your faith in Jesus, that is the crux of the issue. And today I want to invite people who would say, no, that's not where my identity is. I want to invite you today. Let today be the day where you put your faith in Jesus. You have a whole new outlook on life. And for all who have put your faith in Jesus, be reminded today in a reality you can live in tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, and the next. So will you bow your heads with me? I, uh, I want to ask that question, yeah, all around this room. Okay. Have you put your faith in Jesus such that you know you are forgiven of your sins before God, that you are accepted by God, you're in relationship with God as his child and his family? And if you cannot say in your heart right now, like, yes, that's a reality in my life, then I want to invite you. Today, that can happen by faith. I invite you just right where you're sitting, just to pray to God. Right there in your heart, just to pray and to say, God, I know that I have sinned against you. I know that I'm separated from you by my sin. But today, I want to put my trust in Jesus. Please forgive me of all my sin. Please restore me to relationship with you. Please give me this unwavering sense of worth, an unshakable sense of confidence, stable identity in you. Now and forever. When you pray that. You put your faith in Jesus. To all who trust in him, God says, you are mine. Uh, with our heads bowed and eyes closed just all around this room, if you are saying that to God today, if you are saying today is the day, yes, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just before God, just lift up your hand where you are as a picture of you saying, yeah, Today's the day 
for me or I'm trusting in Jesus. It's my sense of identity. It's my sense of worth and confidence. Oh God, I pray. Thanking you for how you brought people here today to say yes. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be restored to you. God, I pray for eternally life-changing decisions that are happening today as a result of your word. I pray that those who are trusting in Jesus, that from this day forward, they would know and live in this reality. I pray for every follower of Christ in this room that we would live in this reality, that you would free us from living for the approval of others or for ourselves. Help us to remember who we are in you and to live to please you alone. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to check out other resources on similar topics as today's sermon, like church leadership, the grace and mercy of God, and more, you can do all that at our website, radical.net. And don't forget, you can still take advantage of the special code for our podcast community to get 10% off of your entire group registration to Secret Church 20, God, Government, and the Gospel. That's coming up soon on April 24th, 2020. You can join us in person at McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., or join the tens of thousands online via the live simulcast. Either way, we hope you join us. It is a night you don't want to miss. Just don't forget to use the code podcast when you check out for 10% off of your registration. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at Radical.net.